Well, I want to read a scripture before we begin tonight. Um, it's a scripture we quote every week, actually, in our prayers. It's from Daniel chapter 2. Jan Daniel chapter 2, um, verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. And He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He goes on and he says, he continues, he reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. This is what we see being played out in history. So when we study history, you know, like I always tell my students, history is his story. And we see this throughout history, throughout God's story that he is still writing, that he removes kings, he raises up kings. And when we say that he removes kings and raises up kings, we have to understand what that means is he removes nations and raises up nations, not just individual rulers. It applies to both, and it depends. Uh, and we see this throughout history. Think of all of the kings and kingdoms that you don't even know the names of that have existed in history. History is filled with ones that we do know the names of. It's also filled with those that we don't even know the names of. And so this is the work of God. This is what Daniel declared about God to Nebuchadnezzar, one of the great kings of a great empire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who raises up kings. You also remove kings. You raise up nations. And you judge nations. And Father, we ask that you would help us be a people who understand who you are and who we are in relation to you. Lord, as people who dwell in our nation, the nation that you have caused us to be born into, to be citizens of, Father, help us to see and help us to understand that, Lord, we are not just Americans, but we are Christians. We are God's people. We are citizens of heaven dwelling in this nation. And that the blessing of this nation is because of your gospel, because of the salt and light that your people have historically been throughout history. And we see that because of that, you've kept your promise to Abraham. That, Lord, where your people are, Lord, the, the families of the earth are blessed as a result of your people dwelling in the land. Father, help us to be a people today who don't just read those scriptures and think about those things in terms of some ancient, far-off history that doesn't apply any longer. But Father, I believe you desire to bless the families of the earth even through our lives, through us today. Help us to be a people who realize that and strive to live our lives in a way that we would bring blessing to our land. Father, we ask that you would teach us and that you would help us to learn the lessons of your story, that we would be a people that would, be, that would bring glory to your name and blessing 
to the land you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are, um, we kind of ended last week with the end of the uh, first Jewish revolt. That ended in, in 73 A.D., so remember, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., and then there were uh, hanger-ons. The Romans continued to fight this war throughout Judea. It culminated in 73 A.D. with those 960 Jews who chose suicide over being captured by the Romans. And uh, the defeat at Masada, the fall of Masada, really marked the end of the first Jewish revolt for all practical purposes. Um, Vespasian became the emperor of Rome in 70. And in uh, 70, the planning of the Colosseum began. And in 72, um, the construction of the Colosseum began. Some of you have been privileged to actually go to Rome and see the Colosseum in person. Uh, that Colosseum was completed in 80 AD. Uh, so you've walked in a structure, seen a structure that is quite ancient. Um, it was started under Vespasian. It was completed under Titus, his son, and then um, his other son, Domitian, began to reign in 81 AD. In 82, he added the, the upper story of the Colosseum. Who knows what happened in 79 AD in a, in a town called Pompeii. So in 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupted killing about 30,000 people in the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum. Um, it was not until the uh, 19th century, 17th century, gosh, now I'm... When was it? I think it was actually in the 19th century. No, I'm so, I'm so sorry. It was in the, the uh, 16th uh, century the 14th century, in the 1500s, I believe. Um, it was in the 1500s before Vesuvius, I mean, before Pompeii was even discovered. So uh, it lay buried under ash uh, until the 1500s. It wasn't properly excavated until much later. Uh, and now you can go to Pompeii and actually all of those centuries that it lay buried under ash perfectly preserved um, that city. And so today you can go to Pompeii and actually they have um, plaster casts. So the, the, the people that were buried in that ash as they decayed, it left a void in that ash. And as they uncovered all of that, they were able to pour plaster casts into the cavities that those bodies created and so now in Pompeii, you can see there's about, I think there's about 1,200 uh, bodies. Most of the people left, but a lot of people didn't. Um, it's really quite incredible. So Vesuvius, when it erupted, it was such a great eruption. The pressure was so great that it blew ash and hot gas and rock, lava, uh, or molten uh, lava. It would have been, it, it turned into rock as it cooled. But it was very hot. The gases were very hot. It blew those 11 miles into the sky. And it's, that cloud stayed suspended there for like 12 hours. And so the people could see the mountain has erupted. It, there was no lava that flowed and destroyed Pompeii. It wasn't lava. 
there was a great earthquake. There was this eruption. And so people knew that something horrible was happening, but there wasn't a lava flow. And so some people didn't leave. And when finally that cloud collapsed, it was like more than a hurricane of superheated air that flowed through that city, poison gas and superheated air that just instantly killed. So there was ash raining. So ash was raining down on Pompeii quite heavily, even while that cloud was suspended. So people were leaving because they knew something horrible was happening. But for the 1,200 or so that didn't leave, um, they were, were killed by this hurricane of hot air and poison gas that came through the city. And then all that ash that was suspended came down and literally buried the city almost instantly. And then those people lay there for centuries until it was excavated. And so it's really pretty interesting. You can see the frescoes. So it evidently was election season in Pompeii when, when the volcano erupted. So there are election signs. Don't vote for so-and-so. He's a drunk. Uh, he's corrupt. It, very similar to what we see today, except the Pompeians seem to be a little more um, maybe rude in their election signs, you know. But uh, all of those things were there. They found buffets, restaurants that were like buffets. Um, it's, it, it's really quite fascinating. Again, the wonders of modern technology. I, I probably will never get to go to Pompeii, but I can go there virtually and watch the videos and take the virtual tours of the city and, and see these things. And so can you. It's really pretty interesting. And so that perfectly preserved city, now excavated, gives us a very intimate picture of what life was like in 79 AD. How people lived, the things they did, the things they, you know, just everyday activities. Um, how they lived, the, the, what their homes were like. Uh, it's really quite fascinating. And we don't have to guess with a city like Pompeii because it has been perfectly preserved. It's almost like walking back in time and, and walking into that city. In 81 AD, Domitian becomes the emperor of Rome. He's the son of Vespasian, the brother of Titus. Uh, Titus ruled from, um, uh, for almost 10 years. Um, Vespasian only ruled a couple of years, then Titus became the emperor, and then his brother Domitian became the emperor of Rome in 81 AD, and he rules until 96. He ruled a long time, um, much longer than his father and his brother. And with uh, Domitian came persecution of both Jews and the church during his reign, and um, He, he, um, so the Colosseum was dedicated under Titus, but Domitian added the, the final story to the Colosseum in the second year of his reign. Um, in 98 AD, Trajan becomes the emperor of Rome. And Trajan makes Christianity illegal. Uh, so Trajan did not hunt down Christians but if Christians were found um, and it became known that they were Christians, um, if you did not renounce your faith in Christ in allegiance to the emperor who was God, you suffered the death penalty. So Christianity was punishable by death. And uh, Trajan made it illegal under penalty of death to be a Christian, to have faith in Christ. By the end of the first century AD, 
So by 100 AD, there were congregations, there were churches in almost all the cities that Paul had visited in his three missionary journeys. There were churches in Egypt. There were churches across North Africa. Uh, in other words, by the end of the first century, Christianity had gone basically throughout the Roman Empire. And the gospel had been established uh, throughout the world, uh, throughout the known world. We don't really even know how far beyond the empire the gospel went. I believe that there is a very good chance that the gospel went far beyond what, what we call the boundaries of the Roman Empire. Um, by 100 AD, we, that, that's 70 years in essence since the, the crucifixion of Christ. In 70 years, uh, we know that the silk trade, for instance, started uh, in, in the years, in the century before the birth of Christ. Um, some of your dates will say that the silk trade with the West started in the 70s AD, but it really was going long before that. It was really had been established since about 130 BC. But what happened in uh, what happened in the 70s AD is that Rome was Rome was at its zenith. Uh, the Pax Romana. Uh, the strength of Rome, the strength of the empire, the peace of Rome. Uh, there were no more wars with the, the end of the Jewish revolt. There were not major wars. Rome had firm control of the empire, had firm control of the, of the, of the world in terms of Europe, North Africa, parts of Asia. So the Roman Empire touched three continents. And so uh, the silk trade began to flourish under the Roman peace. But think about it. Uh, that means that Chinese traders would have been coming. So Tyre was one of the, was one of the areas that they uh, went to to ship their silk across the Mediterranean. Tyre was the port city. Remember, if you, if, if you remember... Tyre and Sidon, these were merchants. These were the sailors of sailors. So these were the descendants of the Phoenicians who were the master sailors. Um, and so Tyre was a port destination. Um, I remember I sat with a Chinese missionary many years ago, um, and he showed me Chinese characters, and he was saying, you know, they... There's like 3,000 uh, language, different languages across China. There's so many different ethnic Chinese. There's like 3,000 different ethnic languages. And I remember he told me, he said, as horrible as Mao's revolution was, one of the things that Mao did when he took power in China is that he made everyone in China uh, learn Mandarin. He made Mandarin Chinese the language of China. So instead of having 3,000 different dialects of Chinese, now you have one dialect. And by law, everyone must learn Mandarin. And everyone must speak Mandarin because that's how the country of China functions. And he said, as horrible as Mao was, he said, what God did through that was now when you go to China, you don't have to learn one of 3000 different dialects. You learn Mandarin. And now in China, you can proclaim the gospel. It doesn't matter where you are, because now everyone in China speaks Mandarin. And, and he showed me uh, that we learned this in our history when the Chinese developed their alphabet, their language. They don't really have an alphabet. Do you know how many characters there are in the Chinese? If you want to call it an alphabet, we can call it that, but it's not an alphabet. They're characters. Do you know how many characters there are that make up their language? 
50,000. Now imagine singing that alphabet song. So they're not, uh, they're characters, they're pictures. So each character represents a picture. Not even words, no. It's pictures. So, um, like, do you know what the symbol is for household in, in Mandarin, in Chinese? Not Mandarin. It's, this is the accepted, and however this came, Mandarin has been a language, you know, for, 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 for centuries upon centuries. It's just that there, not everybody in China spoke Mandarin. Because there were so many secluded uh, people groups. Because China um, was so tribal for so long. The, I wish I had a board, a whiteboard. I should just bring a whiteboard sometime. The picture for household is a boat. A boat with eight mouths. A boat with eight mouths. Why a boat with eight mouths? Chinese like big families. Because Noah had seven families. Yeah, that's what I think. Why a boat? Why eight mouths on a boat? And so they they count they count family family members. The, they say, how many mouths do you have in your family? How many mouths do you have to feed? So it's mouths. That, that's, so the picture for household, family, is, is a boat with eight mouths. That, now, this, the missionary also told me that the, the symbol for come here is a hill with three crosses on it. Why? Of course, you know, and he's showing me all these. He said, this is how we present the gospel. He said, I mean, it's right there. He said, so tell me that the Chinese were not there when Jesus was crucified. Why do we believe there were not Jews living in China, perhaps, who came every year down the Silk Road to bring their silk to trade? And we're very well aware. Now, we know there, there weren't great numbers of, of Christians in China, but somehow, I mean, we know that the people of China came from the people, the eight mouths that came off the ark, that's where they came from. And somehow that got passed down in their, in their you know, their history. So the Silk Road, um, I don't even remember what I was talking about as I got on that, that Silk Trail there. Um, oh, it was Trajan. Trajan, he makes it, he makes it, uh, he becomes emperor, he makes it, oh, by the end of the, the first century, you've got these churches. We don't know how far beyond the Roman Empire churches Christianity had gone. But the Bible says, Paul says that, that when he writes his letter to the Romans, he said Christianity has been preached. The gospels have been preached to the ends of the earth. Do you believe he's just using hyperbolic language or do you believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that could be possible? I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that could be possible. And there's no reason for us to not believe that's not possible. I think we should believe that it's not only possible, but that it happened. In 117 AD, Hadrian becomes emperor of Rome. Have you heard the name Hadrian in the news lately? Just by chance? Do you know anything that's happened recently that involves Hadrian's Wall? Do you know where Hadrian's Wall is? Huh? 
Yeah, so northern England, Scotland. So when the Romans, when the Romans, um, the Roman Empire went up into Britain, but the Scots, the, the Scottish tribes were so wild and so unruly, the Romans said, uh, we're good. Hadrian built a wall across northern England at Scotland there, and, and he said, we want to keep those guys over there. We don't want them coming to us. And you guys don't worry about going to them. So Hadrian's wall separated the Scots, the, the, the Celtic tribes of Scotland um, from the civilized Britons. So, um, you know, the story of St. Patrick, Patrick in, in the fifth century or the fourth century is um, actually, it would be the third century in the 400s. Patrick is kidnapped by Irish pirates. Well, he's living in Britain before the fall of the Roman Empire. And Britain has been um, civilized by the Romans. So the Romans have been there for centuries. And so Hadrian, uh, they haven't been there yet for centuries under Hadrian, but Julius Caesar, uh, early on in the empire, they, they went into Britain and they basically took over Britain. And Hadrian's Wall was built to keep the Scots out. Well, it, Hadrian's Wall, if you, in, in recent news, there's a famous tree. It's the, um, I can't remember the name of it. It's a sycamore, but what's it called? The, it's a sycamore tree. It's over 300 years old, they believe. Um, it's very. It's one of the most historic trees in Britain. And some 16-year-old kid and his 61-year-old friend cut it down. And this tree grows right at Hadrian's Wall. And it's iconic. You've got this... This, these two hills and then you've got this valley in the middle of this valley is this iconic sycamore tree that's giant and, and they cut it down and it fell across Hadrian's Wall. It's right there at Hadrian's Wall and so Hadrian's Wall has been in the news recently because of the cutting down of this sycamore tree. Well, Hadrian became the emperor of Rome in, in 117 AD and he ruled Rome from 117 A.D. to 138. So for 21 years. Now remember what happened to Jerusalem after the destruction in 70 A.D. Um, I don't have it. I've got the quote in um, one of my books at home. But um, Josephus tells us that upon the defeat of the Jews in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and the burning of the temple. So remember the Jews, they just kept retreating farther and farther into Jerusalem until they actually retreated into the temple compound. And the temple compound was like a fortress. And then they, that, they had nowhere else to go and the temple catches on fire and the temple burns in the Romans, you know, capture everybody. And um, actually, I've got, I wish I'd have made a copy of it, uh, but there's a chart from history. So uh, uh, one of the Roman historians, they, they actually ordered uh, an accounting of all the people that died. And so not just the 1.1 million in Jerusalem, um, but they counted all the people from all the cities that the Romans uh, captured in this war, this three, three plus year, three and a half year war. It was a three and a half year war is what it was. Three and a half years. Uh, probably not by accident, three and a half years of tribulation, seven years of tribulation, and we won't go there tonight, but not coincidental that this was a three and a half year war. And... Um, and so in all, it was over 1.3 million Jews that died in this war across all of Judea. 
And, and so anyways, upon the defeat there, upon the end of the first Jewish revolt, Titus ordered, as was the Roman custom, the city of Jerusalem leveled and plowed. Yes, plowed. Now, what do you have to do to plow a city? How do you plow a city? Do they just go and plow the yards? They plow it up. So this is why Josephus said, following that, when you came back and you looked at Jerusalem, you couldn't tell there was a city there. Now, the Temple Mount, what we call the Temple Mount today was there. Uh, that was left. That was built up by Herod. But that, that also, everything that was on that Temple Mount was gone. It, Josephus does say that Titus left the western wall there. Now, some believe that, um, that that actually was the side of the temple. Uh, that's commonly what's believed. Some believe now that that might have been actually the site of the Roman fortress and the temple was just below that in another spot. You can research all that yourself. But the point is, there was nothing that resembled a city anymore. It was plowed. It was leveled and gone. What we do know is that, um, that those things that, that were buildings, um, big Corinthian capitals, you know, the tops of the big pillars, that's what Herod, you know, Herod, when he rebuilt or expanded the temple and built his palaces and all that, it was all Greek architecture. And, and they found those things pushed off because Jerusalem is a series of hills. And so, you know, from where the temple and the old city is to the bottom of the, uh, of the Kidron Valley, it's like 400 feet. It's deep. And so we know that the Romans pushed those big stones and parts of those, those, they found those capitals down in the Kidron Valley where the Romans just pushed it all off because they plowed it, they leveled it. And so then it became a place for the 10th legion to live. How many soldiers are in a legion? How many? A legion, uh, a full legion is 10,000 soldiers. It's a lot. And now think about what comes with the legion. Uh, you don't just have 10,000 soldiers. You got all the things that, that got to supply those 10,000 soldiers and provide for those 10,000 soldiers. So there were at least double that if you want to talk about family, because those legions lived there. They had families. They had support systems. So, you know, in our current world, the Texas Department of Labor uh, tells us, for instance, here in Taylor at Samsung, this is the statistic. This is what they know to be true. For every job created, there are four satellite jobs. So for the 15,000 construction workers building Samsung over the next couple of years, the Texas Department of Labor says for, for every one of those, there are four satellite jobs created because somebody's got to feed those workers, somebody's got to house those workers, somebody's got to provide all the things that, that each one of those workers needs. And so it wouldn't have been really very different for a Roman legion. Somebody's got to do, provide all the things to live. And that 10th legion, those soldiers lived there for a long time. I mean, they, they were there for decades. Uh, they might have actually, I need to check my history, but they may have been there for even up to a century in the Roman Empire. They were there for a long time. Uh, and they inhabited that area. Yes. Jerusalem 
Jerusalem, yes. So Jerusalem, as it was known in that day, leveled, plowed. All the buildings gone. And so that was under Titus. Hadrian comes. And then Hadrian, we don't know for sure. There is, there is a debate about this. But uh, there's some good archaeology that's been done. So it's conventional wisdom says that uh, Hadrian had Alia Capitolina. That's, that's the name Jerusalem went under from the time Hadrian had it built, which would have been anywhere from around maybe in the 120s, probably at the earliest he became emperor, 117. So it's believed that shortly after he became emperor, maybe a decade before the second revolt, there's, there's archaeological evidence, historical evidence that seems to suggest that Hadrian could have had Aelia Capitolina built and established about a decade before the Second Revolt. And that actually, would, to me, would make sense when you think about the Second Revolt. So, so Jerusalem, from that time, let's just say from, from the mid-120s until about 324, there was no such thing as Jerusalem. It was Jerusalem to the Jews, but to everybody else on earth, it was Aelia Capitolina. And, and, and that was the capital named after Hadrian's family. Alia is, uh, it's part of the family name. His name is like four gigantic words. And so when you see, so they've uncovered stones. For instance, they uncovered these two massive stones that the 10th Legion had inscribed uh, giving honor to Hadrian. It's got his full name there in honor of the emperor who established Aelia Capitolina. They, the, they found one of these like years and years ago and then recently they found this other stone. Well, they realized these two stones go together. Um, and, and so they're now in, on exhibit there in Jerusalem. But this city... For at least 200 years, was known as Alia Capitolina. Now, conventional wisdom has said for a long time, until recent these recent discoveries and things, that seem to indicate that this city was built before the Second Revolt. I think that makes sense. Uh, the Second Revolt took place in 132 A.D. So while Hadrian was still ruling, remember, he ruled until 138. And so in 132 A.D., a guy by the name of Bar Kokhba um, raised an army of 400,000 men. And he, he drove, basically, long story short, he drove the Romans out of Jerusalem and recaptured Jerusalem. And they held Jerusalem long enough that they even minted coins. They minted coins and they had the date. So when, when Bar Kokhba and his men retook Jerusalem, they, they, they returned to the Jewish calendar and they said, this is, the beginning of the new kingdom. And they minted coins and, and uh, celebrated this. It was very short-lived. So the second revolt began in 132 AD and it ended in 135. And so uh, Hadrian uh, sent Roman forces back in overwhelming fashion and they crushed the Jews. So some people believe that he built Aelia Capitolina after that revolt, but I think he built it before because what they did, remember, they plowed Jerusalem. And so when they plowed Jerusalem, when they leveled everything and Josephus looking at what used to be Jerusalem immediately following the destruction of 70 AD said, you can't even tell there ever was a city there. 
Well, what the Romans did, they made that the home of the Roman legion. They made it a Roman city. They built a temple to Jupiter. Who's Jupiter? Anybody know? Jupiter is the Roman equivalent of the Greek god Zeus. Jupiter was the chief god in the Roman pantheon of gods. And so they built a temple to Jupiter right on the spot of the Holy of Holies. They, he, on purpose, the Jews, the Romans built it on purpose right where the temple would have been. And the first thing Titus did before he ever built a temple, after he defeated the Jews and ran all the Jews out of Jerusalem, captured everything, the very first thing he did, he went to the spot where the Holy of Holies was, where the temple burned down, and he sacrificed animals. He specifically sacrificed pigs to desecrate that area so the Jews would know it's like in your face. And, and then they built a temple to their chief god. And they built temples to their, all their gods all over Jerusalem or what would become Alia Capitolina. And so, as you can imagine, and not only that, but Hadrian would not allow the Jews. The Jews were strictly forbidden to enter Jerusalem. He allowed them to come one day out of the year. It's a day called Tish B'Av. And Tish B'Av is the ninth of Av. The ninth of Av. Do you know what happened on the ninth of Av? Well, on the ninth of Av, the temple was destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians. On the ninth of Av, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. On the ninth of Av, there were all kinds of disastrous things. And so that happened to the Jews. The ninth of Av became this day of mourning and fasting every year. It's a tradition, the Jews. And so Hadrian allowed the Jews to come into Jerusalem on the ninth of Av to mourn their temple that wasn't there. But they could do no religious activity. There was no worship. There was nothing that they could do in Jerusalem. There was nothing about Jerusalem that said it ever was a Jewish city. It was a Roman city inhabited by Romans, inhabited by Gentiles. And Hadrian, Titus and Hadrian did that on purpose because especially after the second revolt, they did not want the Jews to ever be able to go back rebuild that city, rebuild that temple. So for all practical purposes, so there was a diaspora that took place, a dispersion that took place after the first Jewish revolt. But the Jews were in the land and were able to gather an army of 400,000 men after the second revolt, no more. The Jews were completely taken out of the land and dispersed across the empire. And until 1948, the Jews did not return to that land in mass. They, it's not that they didn't have a presence there, but they never became a nation again until 1948. So from the time of the second revolt until 1948, the Jews were kicked out of their land and they were never allowed to come back to form a nation. The, the Romans made sure of that. And so this guy, Bar Kokhba, he raises this army of 400,000 men. Uh, he was not a priest. He was not a king. He, he couldn't call himself a priest because he wasn't of the right tribe and he was not of the line of David. So for centuries, Bar Kokhba was a folk hero of the Romans, but nobody knew if Bar Kokhba was a real guy. And so Jewish little boys and girls would play Romans and Jews. Like, you know, kids grew up playing cowboys and Indians. The, the Jewish kids would grow up playing Jews and Romans. And they would pretend like they were Bar Kokhba who defeated the Jews. Well, when Bar Kokhba came and he leads this revolt, they considered him, they believed he was the Messiah. 
His name meant Prince of Israel. That's what, that's what, that's what he was called, the Prince of Israel. And so, but after the diaspora, after, after they were utterly taken out of the land and all vestiges of the Jews in the land basically was gone, and they're living in all these other places over time, they, they knew of the revolt, but no one knew. They had no evidence that Bar Kokhba was a real guy other than the stories. And that was the case until 1960 and 1961. In 1960, a group of archaeologists, I can't remember, I think they were Israeli archaeologists actually, were, were, um, were excavating in what, what's called the, um, oh, what's it called? Um, it's a canyon by the Dead Sea, um, Nahal Hever, or Nahal Hever, however you say it. And they're, they're exploring caves. It's where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so they're like, let's, you know, there's, remember, there's so many of these caves, there's thousands of them, that there's still so many that have never been explored because they're so difficult to get to. Well, they're in this canyon Nahal Hever, and they're doing exploring, excavating in these caves, and they find this cave with like stuff in it. And they discover these letters. They discover a cache of letters, just like the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they find these letters. Well, they found a cache of letters, Bar Kokhba writing to his generals. Letters from him to his generals all about the second Jewish revolt. And in these letters, he calls himself the president of Israel. Well, they have the historical evidence that he was a real guy. I mean, they found all kinds of things in this cave to prove now that Bar Kokhba is not just some legend. He actually was a real guy. He obviously was not the Messiah, right? Because the Messiah had already come. And so there in the second Jewish revolt, this guy rises up and they believed him to be the Messiah. Why? Because he did exactly what they expected and wanted the Messiah to do. He ran the, the, the Romans out of Jerusalem. He restored the kingdom, so they thought. And once again, in 132 to 135 AD, they think, that God has finally answered their prayers, sent their Messiah, and now they will never be oppressed again. It was worse the second time for the Jews than it was the first time. And it really, you, you realize, you know, now we see what's happening in the Middle East and it's horrible what's happening. It's horrible. And we should pray. We should pray for the people of Israel. We should pray for the people of Gaza. We sh they both need Jesus. Hamas and the Palestinians need Jesus. But guess what? The Jews need Jesus too. Because Jesus is the only one that will ever bring peace to their land. Starting right here in their own hearts. And so, that revolt ended in 135 with the ultimate dispersion of the Jews across the empire. All right. What we're going to, so that, that kind of ends. So at that point, Jewish history takes um, a radical turn. Jewish history is no longer going to be centered in the land. Up until this point, from the time of Abraham until 135 A.D., 
the history of the Jews was centered in the history of their land. They were in their land, the land that God promised them. Now following this second Jewish revolt, until we get to the 19th century, the late 18th century to the, to the 19th century, to the early 19th century, the history of the Jews really is separated from the history of their land. And they've been dispersed throughout the world and they have a very, a very sad history throughout the world. And we'll look at some of this as we go. But this is not the end of the persecution that the Jews experienced. They have been a people persecuted throughout their history. Um, and they're still waiting for their Messiah. And they are still rejecting their Messiah. And that rejection of their Messiah is contributing to their ongoing suffering. It is. All right, any questions? Well, just in terms of um, the, the, the worst part was they were removed from the land. So, um, I mean, for all practical purposes, those Jews, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea, those Jews were exported to the ends of the earth as slaves, as uh, to populate other colonies under Roman rule. But they were not allowed to remain in their land because Rome would not have another uprising. And to prevent another uprising in Judea, they just got rid of the Jews in Judea. And, and so in that sense, it was worse because they lost their homeland. Yeah. I think it's hard for us to understand how painful that is uh, for the Jews. You know, um, if you've ever been to a Seder, and this isn't a, a, a modern phenomenon, uh, for many, many, many years now, I mean, for centuries, the, the traditional Seder, at the end of the traditional Seder, what, is, what does the Seder end with? It ends with the, the uh, statement, next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. That didn't just begin recently. That began when the Jews were exported from their land and forbidden to go back to their city. It wasn't their city anymore. It was the Roman city. And so, it, remember, it was called uh, Aliyah Capitolina until 324. What happened in 324? Well, when Constantine becomes emperor of Rome and he's converted to Christianity... And he makes Christianity the religion of the empire. Uh, Jerusalem is restored. The name Jerusalem is restored because that's the name of that city in the Bible. And so it is Constantine who wanted the Bible exported throughout the kingdom. It's Constantine who wanted the Bible to be identified, canonized, so it could be shared. And so it wasn't until the Christian era, beginning with Constantine, that it became Jerusalem again. And then in time, all of those pagan temples and everything, they were, they were replaced with churches. And so they had churches built. And they took down the temple to Jupiter and they had all those things. And that was the case until, uh, until the, the um, 13th century, until you know, the 1400s when the Muslims took over and, and were able to take Jerusalem. So for 1,100 years, for 1,100 years, the Christians ruled Jerusalem and they returned that city back to a city that was centered in the faith. 
the Christian faith, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, but the Jews were still, the Jews were, were, were able to come back. So once, the, you know, once Rome fell, it's not that the Jews couldn't come back. They, they were in Jerusalem. They lived in Jerusalem. But it was never, ever again a Jewish nation. It was a place Jews could live, but they had no temple. They had no real way to practice their religion. That's why, you know, after that, uh, really after the first Jewish revolt, their religion, it changed. And it still changed. Uh, And they don't have the same religion, if you will, as we do. Um, They can't. Because they're still looking to things that will never come back. Because they're still looking to shadows when the substance has already come. So we just need to pray that their eyes be open to the substance that's here and that they stop chasing shadows. Are there any other questions? Any other thoughts? Comments? Yes. Well, that's a great question. Um, let, let's, uh, let's look at that scripture um, in Luke 21, 24. Um, let's see. There's, a, there's, another, there's another reference to it in Daniel. So in Luke 21, 24, Jesus says, and they will fall. Well, let me just start uh, in verse 20. Uh, Luke 20, Luke 21, 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let those who are in the country uh, enter her. And, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days, for there will be great, great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles... Are fulfilled. Now, then there's a reference in Daniel. Says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, in the middle of seven is three and a half, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, That's not what I'm looking for. Hold on. Let me go back to my scripture in Luke. That John, that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians? There's a veil over their face. Well, will it? Yeah, so the question would be, I guess, would that be lifted all at once or is it being lifted now? As every time a Jew comes to faith in Christ. Yeah. Um, Jerusalem be trampled by Gentiles until the time, times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What is that? The, the reference there is back to the scripture I read in, in Daniel where he talks about the abomination. Um, on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate you know, in another that's where Jesus said, it's where Jesus said, you know, when you see the abomination of desolation, he's referring to this reference back in Daniel. 
Daniel uh, 9.27. And, and then Daniel 9.27 and Daniel 12.7, it makes reference to this three and a half years, this, this, this week. Paul makes reference also, you know, when he talks about until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, talking about when the Lord will one day return. That word Gentiles is simply the word nations. So Paul is writing that when Paul says until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Right, right. Um, it ha it, it, there is historically a distinction there, um, but I would say that the nations, when it says in Psalm 2, for instance, that uh, talking about Jesus, the Son of God, the, the nations will be your inheritance, I, I believe that includes all nations, including the Jews, including Israel. Um, and we know that's true because... The gospel is for all nations because that was the promise to Abraham. Through you, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Uh, the Jewish nation as well as all the other ones. And now we know that based on what Paul writes, God doesn't make a distinction between the nations. There's no longer Jew nor Greek or Jew nor Gentile nations. There's only one nation. It's one holy nation, one royal priesthood, or one royal priesthood, one holy nation called to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So the church is the nation now. Um, so that's an interesting question. You know, how does all that work out in our eschatology? Um, maybe we should... Maybe we should talk about that sometime. But we don't have time tonight. But uh, feel free to look into that. And let's, let's talk about it one Wednesday night. All right, any other thoughts? W one last thing there, that scripture in Luke, and all these scriptures, you know, in Mark 24, um, I mean, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, um, what Jesus is talking about there is about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So there is this trampling under by, by the nations, and that happened in 70 AD. And I would say that even right now, that is still, if you want to talk about physical Jerusalem, I believe that is still taking place. Uh, what's not taking place is the trampling under uh, of the true Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that God is building now. And, and so one of the ways that we need to understand this when we read this in the scripture, and I think this is, we talked about this when we went through the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a tale of two cities, to borrow a phrase from a classic uh, work of literature. And the tale of two cities in the book of Revelation is, is the, the whore Jerusalem and the bride Jerusalem. And the whore Jerusalem has been judged. And she's still being judged in a sense. That city is still in turmoil. It has been in turmoil. What city is not in turmoil is the new Jerusalem that God is building that will one day descend out of heaven. So we read these scriptures, and yes, this is judgment pronounced on that earthly city, the, the, the city, Mount Zion, it's in bondage. But we're not of that city. We're of the heavenly Jerusalem. And so we're not being trampled under. We're free. Um, and so, and victorious. And so we need to make sure when we read these references, we don't get fall into thinking that this is just about 
an earthly city that's going to one day become glorious because God's going to rebuild it and build a temple there and it's going to become a center for worship. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. You are the city. You are the temple. You are the center of worship. It's why Jesus said to the woman, you Samaritans want to worship on the mountain and us Jews want to go to Jerusalem. But the day is coming and now is when those who worship the Father will worship him in spirit and in truth. Meaning what? That worship is no longer centered in a mountain or in a city, a physical city on earth. You are the city. And so wherever you go, there is the city who bears the name of God. You are the place that he's chosen for his name to dwell forever. You are the center of worship because the one we worship dwells within us. And so we've got to really think about these things in a deeper way, in a greater way than we might be tempted to read them based on what we've been taught over the last 150 years through bad eschatology. Okay, I'm going to stop right there because I'm going to get into trouble if I keep going. All right. <laughs>